Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Familiar Strange. I'm Simon Theobald, your Familiar Stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Schools of Culture, History and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University, the Australian Centre for Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. So today, ladies and gents, I'm talking with Brad Weiss. Chair of the Anthropology Department at the College of William and Mary in Virginia, USA. We caught up after he appeared at the ANU for a brief visit to talk about his work with the Journal of Cultural Anthropology, as well as his new book called Real Pigs. I cut out our conversation on his work with coffee and haircuts in Tanzania, which was the first part of his research career, so that we could focus on pigs for the interspecies are pigs persons angle. And also as a demonstration of an anthropologist an American, doing field work within his own country and within his own culture, whatever that might mean. It proves, I think, that it's entirely possible for those of us who are white anthropologists to produce quality work from local experiences, often just down the road from our offices, without the othering that we researchers sometimes produce in our work on non-white societies. I've travelled to the States a couple of times, and I have to say I've never had a particularly high regard for local American cuisine. In my mind, it was just an American inflection of the same European stodge. But what I think Brad shows us is how much diversity there is, and also how important it is to American people in shaping their community identity. We both expressed some pretty clear positions on meat-eating in this discussion. And I'll be honest with you, I am a meat-eater. And it's a good chance to pay attention to your own thoughts and feelings on animal rights, food systems, and the like. If you're interested in following up some of these ideas in a documentary format, I highly recommend David Chang's series on Netflix, Ugly Delicious, that speaks a lot about what local food is in the United States. And in defense of the other side, there's a new podcast of Ezra Klein's show called The Green Pill, where they talk about carnism and all the problems that come with the consumption of meat. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad Weiss. I had been working in Tanzania. My family ended up living in North Carolina. I, I live in the United States, for your listeners who might not know their American geography. I live in the United States. Today I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is where my university, the College of William & Mary, is located. But my family had moved for a variety of reasons I don't need to go into. We ended up living in North Carolina, which is right next to Virginia. Yeah. It's about 200 miles away. And I was essentially spending my the mid middle of the week in Virginia and the rest of the time in North Carolina. And on top of which, I had also begun to chair my department just as I was finishing up my field research in, uh, in Tanzania and finishing up the book that came out of that research. And I thought, well, I'm not about to like head off to Tanzania for another summer because mm-hmm. yeah, I just had yeah, the yeah. You know, family and personal and uh, administrative responsibilities. And uh, I was sort of looking around for other things that I might get an interest in, in working on. My, I grew up in California. My family still lives in California. And so we were out in California that the very summer that I'm talking about. And um, we're up in Northern California. We were in a little bookstore 
And uh, they had a whole bookshelf. This is 2007. They had a whole section of the, of the bookstore, at least several shelves, devoted to what they call local food. And I had literally never heard <laughs> of local food. I, I just like, what does that mean? And so I picked up some uh, examples of a lot of them were cookbooks, but there were other sort of advocates for food policy. And I sort of realized that this local food was all around me here in Northern California. It was definitely a going concern because, you know, as you drive through these little towns up there, you'd see like, you know, local goat cheese and local apples. And, <laughs> and I thought, well, of course they're local. They're right here. Um, <laughs> but but uh, in reading this literature, I mean, literally just perusing it in a bookstore, and also just sort of experiencing what I was experiencing, I suddenly realized like, oh my God, I could do my field research in Northern California every summer. That would be great. And local food, it's its obviously a social movement. It's just begging for some sort of ethnographic uh, engagement and some sociocultural analysis. So I thought, cool, I'll do local food. Well, then I went back to North Carolina, which is where I lived. It turns out North Carolina is also one of the places in, in the United States that is very deeply interested and engaged in the local food movement. And I thought, oh, rats, I don't really have to go back to Northern California. I can just <laughs> stay right here in North Carolina. And then the other part of the story is that North Carolina, North Carolina has a cuisine that's very strongly associated with pork. Up to the middle of 20th century, 19th century foodways of North Carolina, for those that would describe them in that way, the pig is really central to all sorts of seasonal cooking at, that you would slaughter your pigs in the, in the middle of the winter and smoke your hams or produce country hams, make your bacon, produce a lot of sausage. And this is a very social activity in which families get together and slaughter their pigs and then divide up the, the food and, and, the, and then you would have meat essentially for the rest of the year. Uh, it's very, very strongly associated with a particular kind of production, which is called barbecue. And in, in North Carolina, they have, especially in eastern North Carolina, they specialize in what is called whole hog barbecue. And whole hog barbecue is where you dig a deep pit, you build a roaring fire in it, you let the charcoals die down, and then you put a splayed pig, entire pig, into sort the pit. Sort of cut from the nose exactly, to the tail. Exactly. Yeah. Opened up and eviscerated and what's what's called dressed. That's the, dressed. That's the term. Nice. Like yeah. a, a dressed pig. And you cook it not in the fire, but or not over fire, but rather over smoke. And so yeah, the idea okay. is that it's a very low flame. It's, you know, 200 degrees for 24 hours. And then you end up with pulled pork barbecue, which is a very unctuous, uh, the fat has melted into the pig. And it's, I'm sure if people who care about these things recognize pulled pork. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly what the eastern part of North Carolina is well known for. And the rest of North Carolina also prides itself on its own different regional varieties. In fact, the entire American South sees the pig in ways that are variations on the same idea, but pork is really, really essential to, in part because every last aspect of the pig ends up getting used. That fat gets used for greasing pans and used, and lard is just the main fat that one would use instead of butter or instead of olive oil, you'd use lard. So it's a very all-purpose and, and, and it's very much a cuisine of, I don't want to say hardship, but it's, it's one of economizing where you're trying to really stretch every last aspect of that pig. And so the lard works for all sorts of things. The Feet work for all sorts of things, the, uh, and the rest of the pig. And, and a whole hog barbecue is a real big social event, the point of which would be to gather a lot of people for some big activity. North Carolina really prides itself, and I, I even think across the country. Carolina barbecue, for example, yeah, is a I term that yeah. people know what that means, and that's because of the strong association with the pig. So this is a long way of saying that I knew that to study local food or the slow food movement, which is an international mm. movement, to do that would be beyond 
the grasp of any one ethnographer. I could not do that. Okay, <laughs> but, yeah. but I thought, if I'm in North Carolina, I can look at pigs. And interestingly enough, pig production and pig cuisine uh, and consumption was seen by a lot of people who are very active in slow food as a kind of icon of that movement because you can use the pig for all of these varieties of purposes. None, none of the animals supposed to go to waste. So knowing how to use pigs in, in effect becomes a good illustration of the principles of yeah. something like the slow food movement or the local food movement. And you really want to think of, and moreover, you want to think of like your relationship to the land and the, which is the kinds of values that people are trying to literally cultivate through their interest in local food are also kind of exemplified by pigs, which use the land, help contribute to the land. They contribute to the differently agricultural to process. Cows and differently sheep. to cows, differently to sheep. Exactly. Although, you know, there are plenty of places in the world. My good friend Heather Paxson works on cheese producers up in New England, and their, their sheep and goats are, 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 are the thing that, that are allowing small-scale dairy farmers to survive and sort of think of themselves as actually creating a new kind of moral economy if around agriculture through cheese production. So this is why I ended up saying, oh, if I'm going to look at local food systems and I want to do that ethnographically, and here I am in North Carolina, I'll look at pigs. And from there, I found pig farmers. I mean, I literally lived a mile and a half, from, not even a mile and a half from, uh, from a very old, renowned farmer's market. And I had shopped there in the past, but not in a I, wasn't, I wouldn't call myself a regular. I mean, I, I went there in the summers for seasonal produce like strawberries and tomatoes, things that are really outstanding when they're in season. Yeah. But I certainly wasn't going there every single week. But then I started to go every single week and, and uh, I hung out with the pig farmers and I got to know pig farmers. And, and through getting to know the pig farmers in that market, I then got to know pig farmers in other markets. And I also got to know the whole panoply of agencies, institutions, universities, activists who are deeply interested in pig production at all sorts of different levels. So that was really the critical site for networking beyond the market and getting to know. It's how I got to know chefs. It's how I got to know oh, okay. lots of customers. It's how I got to know lots of university people that were interested in um, animal science and things like that. Do you eat pig yourself? I do eat pig myself. Okay. Yes, as I say, I'm a nice Jewish boy who has prides himself on his consumption of pork. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I do eat pigs. I think about it. I mean, I think about it probably more today than I than I did even when I started it. I am both sympathetic and frustrated with a lot of my animal activist friends who are either vegans or vegetarians. Yeah. I am sympathetic because I recognize that these animals have very distinct – all animals – well, not all animals. I'll just say pigs in particular certainly have distinct personalities. Okay, so that's uh, what's something I really wanted to ask you. In your work, yes. did pigs become people? Did pigs become persons? I would say they they became themselves. I have an undergraduate student writing an honors paper now who makes the distinctions between personhood and animalhood. But animalhood is not a lesser form of personhood necessarily. It's a, a form of being and maybe even subjectivity appropriate to whatever animal <laughs> you have. And she's mostly working with, uh, with pets. But I would say that pigs had their own characteristic qualities that made them identifiable and recognizable. And they had their own way of thinking about the world <laughs> uh, and expressing themselves, certainly expressing themselves in the world. And I guess definitely came to know that and appreciate that, which didn't stop me from eating <laughs> some of those pigs. I have a very I'll tell you a quick story, which I've published about previously. I was at a restaurant with friends of mine, and we were eating uh, some barbecue that was produced by this little small restaurant that we all knew very well. And one of the guys I was eating with was a farmhand. And he said, do you remember this pig? This was, this was Ursula that we were oh. eating. <laughs> and I said, Ursula. And I thought about Ursula. And I said, oh, I remember Ursula. So who is Ursula? 
Ursula was a pig that I had met in the very first week or two that I had been working at this farm. And I met her because in the course of doing what are called chores, uh, we were pouring out buckets of grain for in a pig paddock. And this was a paddock that had sows that had recently drop pigs. So right. they they had all they had nested together and they had they had farrowed together. And so you feed them a particular mixture of food and a particular give them a little bit more food so that they have enough to lactate to feed their own kids because it's a, a critical time for that. And because they had all just dropped piglets, <laughs> these pigs were running all around the <laughs> the farm and they were while sows and boars live in enclosures the enclosures are not so airtight that other smaller animals, like okay. tiny little pigs, can't yeah. go, go wherever they want. And farmers don't care because little pigs like to go back to their moms. That's what, the, that's what they do. So a little pig is running around, and it's right at the edge of a fence. And I just picked it up, <laughs> as cute as it could be. Yeah. It was a little red-haired model pig. Never forget this little pig. It was really it was, it was quite, quite attractive. And, of course, it did what you would expect, which is just squealed like a pig. And it <laughs> was very loud and shrill. <laughs> And suddenly I just hear this sort of and, and, and the stomping of feet. And I look behind me and this sow was just barreling down on me. And I was standing right next to a fence and I leapt up on the fence and she got her snout right on the side of my leg, but I, which I whipped over the top. Oh. And had I just stood there, she would have bitten my leg in yeah. half. She would have happily bitten my leg yeah. in half. So she turned out to be a real pain in the neck pig. Of course, it's good that she was protecting her children from me. That's what you would like a good mother to do. But if she, if you get a pig that's so ornery that at every turn that you're trying to take care of her, she's going to attack you. Yeah. That's not really a good thing in a pig. So what happened to Ursula? She ended up being brisket for, <laughs> you know, b- or, or pulled pork, uh, bar, uh, belly, pork belly for many years, a couple years later. But that's a very distinctive pig who's, who I certainly uh, remember. Mostly farmers do not name their pigs. Do yeah. not, they're not their pets. They don't keep them in that way. But there are always occasionally animals that, for one reason or another, are odd men out. They end up injured perhaps in some way or they need special treatment. And sometimes it's just not worth it to do that. But sometimes a farmer will think, well, I'll probably be able to – I can probably save this pig or I can probably you know, treat it somewhat differently, give it a little bit more care. And those pigs often end up being very similar to family pets, but they're still being raised as pigs and for the purpose of, of a pig. So they still get eaten. They still okay. do get eaten on the whole. Now, the other thing is, of course, sows are frequently kept because you want to have sows around so that you can reproduce pigs. And in order to do that, you also need boars. So some sows and some boars, more sows than boars, there are always some pigs that are big, known, recognized pigs. And after a while, you don't eat those pigs, not just because you have these close personal attachments to them, but they just get old enough that you know, you're not going to eat the pork from a seven-year-old pig. It's just not going to taste very good. And you're especially not going to eat the meat from a, a large boar, because the reason that a boar is a boar <laughs> is because he is hormonally intact. And in the United States, anyway, the taste of the meat of a, an animal will, will be what's called tainted by the hormonal presence of testosterone. Uh, and so people will, will say, ooh, it's just far too strong. Also, given the way that taste works, there are some people who really like that taste and prefer it and sort of seek it out. So occasionally you do get people who say, yeah, I want some intact boar if you, if you have it. And they're just rarely slaughtered. It's, they're usually so old when they die, they die that they're literally just destroyed. I mean, they're, they're buried or they're burned or right, something. Yeah, they're, yeah, not, yeah. they're not processed for consumption. So, yeah, uh, the question of what's my relationship with the particular animals with whom I was uh, working and, and uh, interacting and how did I eat them and how could I bring myself to eat them? In no simple sense do I think it's self-evident that one should or should not eat meat. Yeah, I do 
claim that I feel there is some value in supporting farmers who are attempting to create a system of livestock management and therefore meat production that is distinctly humane, that is working with animals, that is working to transform environments and landscapes, and they need support. It's very, very grueling and especially not economically rewarding work. There's no profit to be made in raising animals in this manner. Very, very, very little. Not a, not enough for to have a sort of, if you like, kind of middle-class life. People would give it up entirely if it weren't profitable, but that's different from being devoting yourself to nothing but pig production and expecting so to make a life. these people that... aren't taking holidays overseas once a year? They're no. not? Yeah. <laughs> now, many of them are because the reason they got into pig farming is because they are of means. And so they like the idea okay. of saying, I'm, I'm giving up the, the sort of horrible corporate job that I have that I, I find soul-crushing and, and, and not very rewarding, but I've made so much money that what I can do, do is dedicate you know, my time to, to being a farmer. And then you can buy what you need and you can and not really worry about whether you're making money at it or not. Or, or as you might imagine, a lot of people who have been successful in other fields feel like, I'm going to create the right kind of business model that's actually going to allow me to do this yeah. profitably. And the other thing is, of course, you know, nobody is just raising livestock. They're farmers in part of a wider ecology. And so you may depend on your tomato market to be a, a successful pig farmer. And that you just are hoping that every summer you have a bumper tomato crop and fantastic tomatoes. And that will allow you to raise enough. There are literally there are varieties of tomato in North Carolina that are called mortgage lifters. Because <laughs> the point is that that's, people are waiting for those yeah. tomatoes to come out because they know... If they can sell those tomatoes, they can sort of make their bank for a very long time. I mean, that's great. So, I mean, what that says though is that it's it's not the pig in isolation. Then is it? It's a pig it's, caught in a total network. That's of that's food exactly production. right. Now, in the kind of production that I am working in, in particular, this kind of system of small scale, what's called pasture raised pork, which is to say pigs that are raised outdoors, emerges in the shadows of the industrialization of animals, which is really legion in the United States. It is here in Australia yeah. as well, and certainly much of the rest of the world, Canada and, and Denmark, where they produce more pork than virtually anywhere else, certainly per capita. It's an, almost entirely um, what are called confined animal feeding operations in the United States, or just enclosed pigs. And there, you want to only raise livestock to the exclusion of all other things. You're not a farmer. You are raising animals in climate-controlled environments at such an enormous scale that there's literally no time or profit or energy or, or capital to do anything but focus just on the production of those animals. Now, it's also the case that a lot of those people who are doing that or certainly the, the companies for whom you are raising those animals are invested in all sorts of other things. But the people who have the contracts, in other words, the actual farmers who are doing the day-to-day the -day work, they're basically in, up to their ears in debt trying to service the debt on the infrastructure that it takes to raise these animals. And right, so they're right. really, really focused on eking out some sort of a profit through the production of through livestock. Through mass production. Through of, the mass production yeah. of, of nothing but pigs or chickens or what have you. But that's not the case mostly in North Carolina. Is it, it is the case mostly in it North isn't Carolina. The case it, in what, what simultaneously in North Carolina or consecutively in North Carolina, you had the rise of big ag industrialization that led to the massive enclosure of these pig houses. Um, there were some very specific acts of legislation in the North Carolina legislature in the 70s and especially in the 80s that were designed to give massive subsidies to agriculture if they met certain requirements, which were basically about the size of the farms. And farms could be 
not considered factories, but they were considered farms. So you could write off every piece of equipment. You could, I mean, they're just massive tax breaks. That really promoted the idea that North Carolina was going to revitalize its economy. In the 1980s, which was to say just after the early Reagan revolution, which really was quite detrimental to American uh, employment and really reshaped the American economy in all sorts of ways in that early 1980s, well, the response of North Carolina was to double down on agriculture. And the way to do that was not to reach out to the thousands and thousands of farmers across North Carolina, but rather to consolidate <laughs> and make far fewer uh, farmers yeah. raising farms. It was basically get big or get out. So the people you worked with, yes. were they a combination of people who had survived from that era as small-scale farmers and people who had come in as kind of post-corporate hobby farmers? It was more the latter, but there was certainly the former as well. I worked with people who had farmland in their family for a very long time. I worked with uh, one man who had worked in confinement for a while. He didn't grow up as a farmer. His grandfather had been a pig farmer, mm. but he took up pig farming. But the first thing he did was work in a confinement operation. In other words, one of these big industrial facilities. Absolutely hated it. It was terrible for the pigs. He realized that right away. It was also really hard work on for him, and he felt debilitated by it. But he did like farming. Uh, and he knew a lot about animals and he knew a lot about pigs through this process. So he became a smaller scale farmer and started raising his animals uh, outdoors in the same kind of production model that that was characteristic of all the farmers that, that I work with. Most of the farmers that I worked with were new farmers. And some of them were people of tremendous means. Some of them weren't. Some of them were just very young people who were hoping to get loans that would allow them to, or maybe they were apprenticing themselves on a farm so they could just get access to a small parcel of land where they could do their own thing. And there is in North Carolina, there's a lot of agricultural outreach that's, that does make an effort to start help uh, startup farms and smaller and smaller farmers. And then you have to do things like find a market and you have yeah. to learn how to market. It's a very, it's an incredibly complicated thing, which is also part of its appeal. I mean, for a lot of, especially people like you who, you know, like young people who, who are, are well-educated and they understand the environmental implications of an industrial food system. And they are really deeply committed to the idea that they want to do something different. And so they like the challenge and the idea yeah, that like, oh, this is like, I have to figure out what kind of cover crop I'm going to use on this particular field because of the drainage pattern here. And like, and then am I ever going to actually make any money raising yellow squash? Maybe I'll stop raising yellow squash altogether because it's just not profitable. So they like the sort of puzzle and challenge of figuring out how to how to do it effectively. And that's quite a different way of farming, though, from the kind of historical subsistence model. Totally and, different. And again, very different to these huge agricultural corporations. That's, that's exactly right. Is there a tension between these new farmers and the kind of big agri-corporate? Not so much between the, the new farmers and the big uh, structures, because the big structures, frankly, don't care. I mean, yeah, this, okay, this yeah. niche represents less than 5% of meat production in the United States. So Dying. that's like, hey, that's nice. You guys do what you want. Yeah. You're not really interfering. In fact, the really big producers actually tried to develop their own niche. They tried to participate in that niche. So they saw, hey hey, we can be competitive there. Well, all we'll do is we'll pay a bunch of small-scale farmers to sell their pork to us. And then we can, this big, you know, Smithfield is the big name brand that everybody knows in the United States. We'll just, we'll have our own label and it'll be pasture-raised pork brought to you by Smithfield. So, and it didn't work okay. because Smithfield couldn't be bothered to do it properly. And it's too, it was too irregular for the kind of models that they uh, of scale that they were comfortable with. So it, it turned out not to be good, but it didn't cost them anything to try. So they were willing to try. And of course, what, in effect, because we can drive these other people out, of, <laughs> out uh, of the market, but also we can we can capitalize on the market and we can undercut that market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there was some cachet in the idea of the niche of outdoor raised free range 
pigs and and certainly even very very large producers recognize that so it has a certain kind of moral cachet it has a certain kind of hipster quality to it as well what it doesn't have is any is the real economic viability i mean at the end of the day meat is one of those foods that no matter what happens you're not going to be able to go to your farmers market and get a really good deal on meat compared to your local chain grocery store so the people that i that yeah. that do this you know just think about meat consumption in rather different ways they they don't produce at such a massive scale that they need hundreds of thousands of customers. They, most of the farmers that I work with said, you know, if I can get between 100 and 200 reliable customers at this market, which doesn't mean every single week I get 100 people, it means that those same 100 people keep coming back to me on a, on right. a somewhat regular basis, then I think I can make a go of it. Well, that's not very many people, but even that was even that was a challenge. And, and so farmers would say, you know, I don't want you to eat pork chops every night. I just want that whenever you do eat pork chops, I want you to buy these yeah, pork chops. Okay. So eat less meat, but only eat good meat. To get back to your original question of like, of do I eat meat? I, <laughs> I kind of, I try to subscribe to that perspective. And I definitely have thought about eating less meat uh, for a whole variety of reasons, but in part to just sort of realize that in the course of doing this work, I have... Well, for one thing, I was often paid in meat. <laughs> People would just, I mean, wherever I would go, like, we made this sausage. What do you think? Take some home and try it. We've got some ham. And so I, was, I just accumulated yeah. a lot of meat and ended up eating a lot of meat. But I also realized that I was participating in the lives of a lot of animals that uh, ended up in my freezer. Um, and it just gave me pause to think about that for a second. I, you know, I didn't need to do that. I may, those farmers did need to be in the, in the business of taking those animals' lives for the income that, that it generated for them. I'm also just quite cognizant of the fact that, you know, livestock are essential to our lives. You know, mm -hmm. we live in a world that is saturated with livestock and not just in the food that we eat, but in the lives that we live in, the other byproducts that come through livestock production and in the environments that we live in. If you want to be a successful producer of any kind of agricultural product, you need the input of animals, yeah. either through their labor or, or through their manure or through, through other some other kind of input. It's really, really, it's almost impossible to be what some people are calling a veganic, beyond organic, but veganic farmer, which is say I'm not going to use any animal products. So that means, uh, that means no manure even. Exactly. Yeah, right. And that's really hard to farm in that way. So the margins become incredibly small. So this is to go back to my, I mean, lots of vegan friends, lots of animal activists. I completely am sympathetic to their concerns about the lives and, as you put it, personalities <laughs> of animals. But I also think there are far more effective ways to work to reduce the pain and suffering of animals than trying to just limit the amount of meat that people eat, because animals are not just raised for meat. <laughs> their, yeah. their livestock is, is, as I say, sort of saturates our lives in, in much wider ways than that. There are a thousand questions I would love to ask you. I would love this, this conversation to go on ever, but I feel like I should ask you a kind of a, a really anthropological question. Good. What yeah. is it that makes a pig local? That's a really, really great question. And part of what that entails is creating the idea that to be local is somehow significant and important. I haven't been in Australia all that long, but I have heard and seen enough to get the sense that what people and producers primarily in Australia value is the idea that it's from Australia. Yeah. But there isn't really a sense that like it's local food, like this is food that's from the farm down the street. I mean, I, perhaps there are some places where that's a category that makes sense to people or a concern that makes sense to people. In the United States, it's a concern that makes sense to a lot of people. And most urban areas have restaurants that 
tout the fact that they are have these very close working relationships with family farms and have pictures of the farmers and have workshops where they bring in the farmers. What is it that makes a pig local is in the first place an understanding that being local is somehow important and significant. And then you have to define, well, what exactly do I mean by local? It obviously doesn't mean the, all of Australia. And different people define that in different sides, uh, sorts of ways. It can mean that I got it from my farmer's market or it can even mean I know the farmer that that raised it. That's one way to think about it. It could be that it came from within this community in, in some capacity, if not necessarily from the market, from some other venue where, where uh, it, it usually refers to the idea that there are farms in the vicinity of the locality that I reside in. But if, again, what makes a, something a pig local? Well, a community of people interested in having something local. And that yeah, often yeah, is a kind of urban and educated community. So so local food is a big thing in the area of cities. Of course, there aren't local pigs in cities, but in New York City, you have the Hudson River Valley, which is a big area of, of farming. In Washington, D.C., you have Montgomery County, which is a big uh, agricultural land is available in those places. So what makes an animal local is that, in the first place, a recognition that locality is important. And then what people mean by that typically is something like something like care, that these farmers are interested in the concern and the welfare of the animal, that they're interested in the well-being of the people in their community, the health of the of the people of their community. They're trying to serve, provide them with healthy food and being very transparent about what's in that food. They're interested in the well-being of the environment, and they know that pigs will be suited to the environment's that they're being raised in the, and that they're not sort of transforming the environment just for the sake of raising pigs on a massive scale. They're trying to be part of a wider cycle of activities that is enhancing the place, the community, and the values of a community or of a, those kinds of commitments to animal welfare, to the health and well-being of the people that, that consume these things too. I mean, that's and also to, the, to a kind of cultural practice, which is you know, as many people would describe it, kind of authentic. I'm yeah. not selling out to industry. I'm not doing this just to make money. I'm not doing this primarily for the bottom line. I'm doing it because I'm committed to the importance of producing things in the right way. For me, it's kind of interesting because it's it's not really then a question of geography. No. And it's not like you could say local means it's grown within 20 kilometers, no. 50 miles of this area at all. It's not, it's no. not really part of it. So... What is the role of place then in <laughs> framing this this idea of localness? Sure. In a funny, you know, it's funny. I um I have a little anecdote in the story, in the book that I where I talk about uh, ham tasting that I went to with a bunch of people who are interested in eating ham <laughs> at a wine shop, and now the wine shop was owned by a man who was very well known as a as a, a vendor. He he had started a lot of sort of organic. Uh, grocery stores, and he, he was just a very, and he was an entrepreneur who was who, who was very well known, and he had started up this small uh, wine wine shop. When the owner introduced the ham, he said, "These people are trying to do with ham exactly what we're trying to do with wine." Now, the wines that they sold were all from Italy and France and Chile, and it's like, well, they're not from anywhere near around yeah. here. But what they, <laughs> but nonetheless, they thought of themselves as selling local wine, and what they mean by that is small-scale operators who are working with the environments in which they find themselves building up a set of practices that derive from a longer history of caring for those vineyards in certain sorts of ways and techniques of producing wine that were not industrialized or mechanized or driven primarily by profit. So he could literally say, 
these farmers in these valleys in Italy and France that I'm working with are doing the same thing that these pig farmers are working with. And as far as the audience was concerned, and as far as he was concerned, and even as far as the pig farmers were concerned, this was all local food. Uh, so locality is, you're right, it's not about a spatial plot. Right? As though you can just sort of map the universe and say, this place is equidistant from this other yeah. spot. Therefore, they are, oh, that makes, makes it a place. No, it's about, the, it's about these values. It's about the way that the social relationships are meaningfully acted upon so as to create relationships that are important and significant to the people who live. And they may not even live in that place, right? Yeah. Obviously, if you're buying wine from a particular valley in Italy because you know that the broker who's purchased that wine is familiar with that family that's been raising those grapes, that, those variety of grapes for 400 years, so they say, that's still a commitment to the local. <laughs> but it's not necessarily that you're from that locality, right. but it is that you have an idea that place matters. Place is somehow really central to the vitality the taste, the goodness of the food that you consume. I mean, this is a question I think that, that Francesca Merlin, who is my supervisor, uh -huh. spoke to you briefly about during your, your speech two days ago, was this notion of, of a crossover of indigeneity and authenticity. Yes. Uh, so I, I wonder how, how much in, incorporated in this is the, is the story of families themselves? Yes, that's a really that's a really fantastic question. And of course, it's part of the value of ethnography and anthropology yeah. as we find, guess what? It's different in all sorts of different <laughs> places. Australian understandings of indigeneity, I'm uh, very explicitly aware of, as I've been here for just the short amount of time that I have, is completely different from American understandings of indigeneity, even as the history of indigenous peoples in Australia is in some ways more problematic, or at least is, is quite you know politicized and is really fraught uh, in ways that are, are just different. I'm, I'm not going to say better or worse. Yeah. So certainly not, but they're, yeah. but they're just different in, in the United States. Most Americans have no notion of the fact that they are living on indigenous land, that wherever they are in the United States, there are indigenous peoples that once resided in those places. There are certain places in the United States where people do say, Sure, of course, I know that. I'm, I, I, t I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is the site of early colonial settlement in the 1600s. Yeah. And so people are very, well, of course, we all have heard of Pocahontas. She was an indigenous person, but that, but there are no more Pocahontases, except, of course, yes, there absolutely are, which people wouldn't be aware of the presence of the Mattapanai or Pernunke communities that are still extant, actually, and they live right there um, and, and have claims to wherever it is that we happen to be living. <laughs> and, uh, not uh, That is to say, your peoples of European descent happen to be living, or African descent for that matter, happen to be living uh, in that part of Virginia. So there's no indigenous story connected to the authenticity of local pork producers in North Carolina. Is there, there a story of age, though? There is a story of age that's really different. Again, it's sort of like that story of place. You can say that what you're doing is just like what people used to be doing. Mm -hmm. And you can really value the kinds of things they used to be doing. You can really seek out input from people who once did those things. But the people who once did those things aren't doing those okay, things yeah. anymore and don't have access to the land in the ways that they did. And they're not about to get access to that land. For one thing, a lot of people who were small, this is a, also part of the transformation of of agriculture across the South, but in particular in North Carolina, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the restrictions on plantations and the smaller scale of, 
agricultural activity in North Carolina. Most agricultural activity got displaced in North Carolina in the early and mid 20th century by industrialization and the production of very, very small scale uh, what's called millwork. So people, there was a lot of, there were a lot of textile mills in North Carolina. There were a lot of furniture mills in North Carolina. And so most small farmers got driven out of work because it just wasn't profitable yeah. for them to do that. So they would end up working in town at the mill uh, and their farms just didn't get maintained. Or perhaps the, sometimes their farms didn't get maintained because they had to be maintained to supplement the meager incomes that you were making working at the sawmill, working at the lumber mill, working whatever. You still needed to have your pigs in your backyard. So people did in living memory have uh, an awareness of, if not growing up with pigs, of like my granddaddy used to have pigs mm-hmm. and my dad, granddaddy also worked at the furniture mill. Um, so so there's, there's it's a kind of a dual, the dual economy is the wrong word, but it, but, it, but it is a kind of complementary economy. So people do in the present, cultivate an awareness and an appreciation of what they would call these old-timey ways mm-hmm. of, of farming. Then they'll appreciate that at the same time that they also have to know that they're not operating in ways that have yeah. anything to do with those old ways. Because for one thing, they're just not doing it primarily for subsistence. And, and in the past, there was a lot of that work that was, that was done mostly for subsistence. They also, there really wasn't a lot of of pastured pork production in the past, there was not. It wasn't necessarily enclosed and industrial, but it was much. It was so small scale that literally pigs were kept in pens in the immediate vicinity of somebody's house. Yeah, okay. but they weren't kept out on pastures where you could sort of you know shift them around and move them, move them, and in a way that people will. So this, so another kind of history that people seek out is they'll say, well, in Spain. You know, they have sort of herds of pigs that get driven across the, <laughs> the steps of the Estremadura and they, they, they drive them through the oak forests and they live on acorns and then they get taken off to process. And that, that's a bucolic, quite literally pastoral image <laughs> that people have, which is like well, nothing to do with North Carolina, all, other than the fact that there is an, a relationship between forested environments and farms and household and the idea that was, in fact... Even through the middle of the 20th century, that your, the pigs that you kept in your backyard, you'd finish them out in the woods, and then they'd be ready yeah. to process it. Because basically, when the fall comes and all and the leaves drop and all the other stuff drops, good time to send your pigs into the forest, and then at once at the end of the fall, good time to slaughter your pigs. So no one's really telling the story that my great great grandfather very has very passed few. this this sausage recipe down through. 10, 15 generations, that kind of... I, I certainly would not say nobody, but I would say very few people. And the other thing is, if there are there are people that I know who have who do actually come from families that have been farming for a very long time, including pig farming for a very, very long time, but they're the last people to say something like, we have this family recipe that's really <laughs> important. They're the kinds of people who are just like, literally they would describe what they made. This is a little bit of an interesting uh, kind of vignette. Uh, these are the kinds of people that used to make what they called bootleg sausage. What's that? Do you know what bootleg is? Is that a term? Yeah, that makes sense? We yeah. Use it here. So right. So bootleg sausage is is uh, hey, my car needs to be fixed and it's going to cost three hundred bucks. Well, how are we going to get three hundred pigs? Three hundred bucks. Let's go kill one of those pigs. We'll turn it all into sausage and we'll just sell it out on the front porch on a brown paper butcher wrapper and we'll put up a sign sausage and all the neighbors will see that we have sausage and they'll come and they'll buy um, sausage from us. And if you turn an entire pig into sausage, sausage. in an afternoon or a couple days. You'll you'll raise three hundred bucks. It's not the best way, best use of your pig necessarily, because you could get other higher valued products from it if you if you. But if you need money quick, uh. and so people used to say, "Oh, a pig is money in the bank." Now those are not people who are like, 
I am using my grandfather's recipe to produce sausage. <laughs> they, they, they're not trying to corner a, they're not trying to brand their, their pig, yeah. right? They're not trying to say, oh, there's some very specific. Now, there's certainly know-how that goes into the producing of the pigs and raising pigs and, and knowing that pigs, the seasonality of pigs and they, you know, and the kinds of places they like to live and the kinds of ways that you should keep their pasture pens and their passengers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, they're not so much worried about the consumers. I mean, uh, it's and, a sausage of necessity then, isn't it? Really? Exactly. Like it's, it's 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 like that's what you do with a pig when you got to yeah. sell it you turn it into sausage so it is yes it is a taste of necessity but which it today is sought out and turned into a taste of luxury at the <laughs> at the same time so uh, we're almost out of time sure. there is one more question i'd like to ask you before we go though yeah is is what is the role of taste ah, in all of this sure I, i've written a lot about taste uh, and in a lot of different sorts of ways so one way that you his, that is very, very increasingly common in the social sciences to think about taste is to ask about this elusive term terroir, which yeah. is, of course, very strongly associated with French aesthetic experiences of food and more particularly associated with wine yeah. in particular. And the terroir is the notion that agricultural products are in some respect an expression of, again, this term place, of the particular places that they come from. And some would argue that it that wine is an expression of place through things like the minerality of the soil and yeah. the way that that sort of works its way into the grape. Uh, others would say, no, it's really more about the overall ecology of the region and the way that this movement of the sun and the humidity, relative levels of humidity and moisture and rainfall, et cetera, and how that sort of shapes the agricultural season. In other words, they say, no, it's the geography. Because <laughs> it's really like, is it a hillside? Is it, what kind of terrain is it? And then, of course, there are others who would say, no, the terroir really refers to the fact that these are people who have been living in this place for hundreds of years, and they've been making this wine in the particular way that they have for hundreds of years. One thing that's very clear, though, is that terroir did not become a category that people recognized until about 100 years ago. Okay. And it became recognized about 100 years ago because French wine producers were very concerned that there were people in Algeria of French descent that had ended up in Algeria that were producing wine and they were bringing it into France much more <laughs> inexpensively. So they insisted that there was this thing called terroir, which only referred to Burgundy and the Rhone Valley and the Loire Valley and those are places that had very specific qualities that could not be replicated, God forbid, in North Africa. <laughs> so terroir really emerges at that time as a, as a category. I don't mean that to be that cynical about terroir because it is something that people will distinctly say, oh, you can so tell the minerality. You've heard these sorts of yeah, claims made all the time. Yeah. I'm sure it's been made in Australia as well about the Australian Rieslings or Semillon that these are really distinctive wines, uh, Shiraz, that's really like, oh, yeah, you can tell exactly where it comes from. And I'm sure some people can. But what allows people to say that, in my view, is that they have been accustomed to thinking in discerning ways. It's a practice, in other words. You get to the point that you can start to make distinctions and you can start to appreciate those distinctions. So, so taste is not simply something that's like in the thing, let alone in the thing because it emerges out of, out of a yeah. particular kind of place. But taste is a little bit like place itself. It comes out of a commitment to, to recognizing that there's something important about thinking about how food is located in a particular context. And then you can experience that and you can learn how to come to experience that. So 
And I, I have lots and lots of evidence of the ways that people do that, of the way that farmers sort of work to do things like give people samples and tell them what to think about when they're eating those samples and and, and taste those nuts. Yeah, you can like, uh, you can yeah. tell what it's supposed to taste like. And I also have ex the experience of people saying this tastes just like X, and it's usually tastes just like something that historically would have been associated with this place. This taste, this sauces taste just like my granddaddy used to make. Mm. So there, so taste is already redolent of other kinds of things like social values, like kinship, like memory, like history, like, like generational transmission and things like that. So uh, I'm not cynical about those things at all. I think they're actually quite, quite real, but I also think they are in just at every level, they're social and they're cultural uh, at the at the same time. And there's some funny work that's been done on things like uh, French Burgundies that that show that almost all wines that are produced in Burgundy, are, you know, are grown in the topsoil of those areas. It comes from like the overflow of condominium developments that have crossed. <laughs> so it's like, well, if you really want to insist that it's somehow an actual thing because it is a biochemical dimension. Of the wine, you're 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 kind of sunk. And most people who do talk about terroir would would recognize it's never just reducible to something as as simplistic as that. It's always taste is taste is a much a much better kind of process than it's always you you cannot help but taste in the context of memory and in the context of uh, social interaction. That is a fantastic way to end this interview. Thank you, Brad Weiss, for speaking with us. It's been a real pleasure. It's been my true pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that was it, me and Brad Weiss. Today's episode was produced by me, Simon Theobald, while I had a cold, with the help of the other familiar strangers, Jody Lee Trambath, Ian Pollock, and Julia Brown. Our executive producer is, as always, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Stranger podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review with your likes and dislikes. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabro. There's a link to his EP on the show notes. With special thanks to Julia Miller, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>